Good morning. In today's headlines, Detroit's three big automakers failed to appease UAW union leaders. Around 13,000 UAW members stopped working and went on strike at midnight. We talked to the president of the National Right to Work Foundation for some insight on the stalemate. Hunter Biden indicted on felony gun charges. It comes amid Republicans' impeachment inquiry into President Biden, and we speak to an expert live. Former President Trump's fraud lawsuit in New York is now in limbo. Find out why a state appeals court temporarily halted the October trial. The death toll from Libya's catastrophic flooding soars past 11,000. Some are pointing fingers in the disaster's aftermath. And what's the difference between motivating and inspiring someone? We speak to a CEO who says that inspiration is what makes great leaders. Inner strength, compassion, and true authenticity. A pediatric nurse says she found these and more while preparing for the NTD Global Chinese Beauty Pageant. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Friday, September 15th, and Hunter Biden was indicted on federal gun charges yesterday. Yes, it's a historic first for a sitting U.S. president's son to be criminally charged. And this one thing to point out, Evelyn, is that Hunter Biden is innocent until proven guilty. Well, that's right. This indictment, though, this uh, it really supports to some of the arguments from critics, you know, that this is kind of a sweetheart deal. Ah, right. That plea agreement. Yes. And we're going to unpack all of that. But first, we're going to give you some breaking news from overnight. About 13,000 U.S. auto workers stopped making vehicles and went on strike today. That's after union leaders rejected what Detroit's big three automakers are willing to pay. UAW union members began picketing at a GM at a GM plant in Missouri, a Ford factory near Detroit, Michigan, and a Stellantis G plant in Ohio. Its four-year contracts expired at midnight. It's the first time in the union's 88-year history that it walked out on all three companies at once. If strikes drag on, it could raise the price of vehicles if dealers run short, impacting an already strained U.S. economy. The UAW calls it a stand-up strike, meaning more union members may be called on to stand up and join the strike. The UAW is made up of close to 150,000 members, with most still on the job. Here's UAW President Sean Fain on the union strategy. This strategy will keep the companies guessing. It will give our national negotiators maximum leverage and flexibility in bargaining. And if we need to go all out, we will. The locals that are not yet called to join the stand-up strike will continue working under an expired agreement. So what are the possible effects of the strike? We're bringing in Mark Mix. He's a president of the National Right to Work Committee. Good morning, Mark. Now, can you first highlight some of uh, what the union is asking for now? What's the latest update there? Yeah, Evelyn, good morning to you as well. Well, the UAW is asking, first of all, if their demands are still the same as they were a couple of days ago, a 46% pay increase with a 32-hour work week. Obviously, that has implications across the board for inflation, the cost of vehicles, and production. But they also want a go back to a defined benefit pension program. Uh, currently, they are under a defined contribution program. Certain employees that got employed in, in, since 2007, but they want to go back to a you know a sponsored benefit program 
that many companies have basically walked away from and talked about defined contribution plans. One of the reasons why they probably want to do this is because the federal pension funds to the tune of about $90 billion, and they may want the taxpayers to be on the hook for the pension programs going forward. Mm -hmm. They're also looking for a COLA increase, cost of living increase, which would elevate pay You know, when the cost of living goes up, when there's inflation. And then other things about how they deal with temporary employees, contract employees, and then the tier system in compensation as well. So lots of issues out there. I'm not sure they've got to a resolution on any of them so far. Right. Now, we've been obviously talking earlier in the show also about a possible rise in car pr prices. What do you think about job security with all these uh, things that you just mentioned? Do you think that could be affected at some point as well? Yeah, absolutely, Evan. I think the job security question boils down to the electric vehicle uh, future of these automobile manufacturers. I mean, President Biden is kind of all in on electric vehicles. We do know this, that electric vehicles take about 30 to 40 percent less labor to build. And so how are you going to continue to employ all these auto workers if we have to go to a completely electric vehicle, automobile you know, sector, if you will, uh, in the next, uh, what, 10 years, I think, is what the goal is. So there's lots of questions about that, but certainly the questions about costs. I mean, the idea of labor costs is a big component uh, as part of the automobile costs. And so with a 46% increase in, in pay and a 32-hour work week, I suspect we're going to get a substantial increase in the cost of an automobile. And then, to your point, in the immediacy, the supply of automobiles may be reduced if they decide to strike the entire system. Mm. Well, and also with EV, Tesla is already <laughs> offering their cars for a much lower price. So how, do you, how much do you think the auto companies, those big three, can afford to offer? Are 36% uh, realistic? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm not going to stand up for the big three automotive companies either because they've got themselves into this mess by, by, you know, dancing with the United Auto Workers for all these years and ignoring individual freedom when it comes to how individual employees might want to negotiate contracts and benefits and situations for themselves. You know, Ford and GM and Stellantis don't do that, and so there's lots of uh, lots of blame to go around. But really, the people that get hurt the most are the non-union employees and those people that want to go to work. Uh, we, we've actually put out a legal notice to workers across the country in the automobile industry that are covered by the, the UAW contract that they can go back to work if they want. They, if they disagree with what the union is asking for or they disagree with the leadership on this or what the demands are, they can go back to work, but they have to do that carefully because we know the UAW will find them and discipline if they cross a picket line. And right now, only three units are, are striking, uh, albeit across the entire automotive industry. And this is the first time, as you mentioned, but they've struck all three at once. We'll see where it goes from here, but hopefully they get this settled and things get get back to regular order and these workers can get back to work and they can feed their families and get their paychecks. Right, thank you so much for your insights. That's all the time we have for today. Unfortunately, thank you very much, Mark Mix. I appreciate it. Thanks, Evelyn. Going back to Hunter Biden, the three-count indictment brought by special counsel David Weiss makes no mention of any tax law violations. Hunter Biden previously agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges to avoid prosecution in a now-defunct plea deal. The gun charge would have been dropped under that deal if the president's son passed regular drug tests and stayed out of legal trouble. The plea deal fell apart when the judge questioned the structure of the agreement and the immunity it would provide from further prosecution. The new charges, according to the indictment, lying on an ATF form and to a federally licensed gun dealer. That's for allegedly swearing he wasn't using or addicted to any illegal drugs, although he admitted to having a crack cocaine addiction at the time. 
And we have an analysis on the issue with legal expert Paul Kaminar in just a moment. But first, a verdict could be reached in Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's impeachment trial today. Closing arguments are set to begin. Paxton's lawyers wrapped up their defense yesterday. The verdict will be up to 30 state senators, mostly Republicans, convicting Paxton on any of the 16 articles of impeachment requires a two-thirds majority. If convicted, he would become the first statewide Texas official to be convicted on impeachment charges in over 100 years. New York Attorney General Letitia James's civil fraud lawsuit against former President Trump is now in limbo. A New York State appeals court judge temporarily halted the trial yesterday. The judge agreed to an emergency request by lawyers for Trump, his eldest son, and the Trump Organization. That was to slow down litigation until the lower court judge overseeing the case rules on a key issue. The order came after Trump sued Justice Arthur Arngren, the trial judge overseeing the case. Trump accused him and James of defying a court order that could narrow the lawsuit. Defendants want most or all of the attorney general's claims dismissed. Oral arguments on pretrial motions are set for next Friday. A court spokesman says the matter has been referred to a five-judge panel, which is expected to rule near the end of the month. The trial could start on October 2nd as planned, depending on how the appeals court rules. The block on the Biden administration's contact with social media firms is no longer in place, at least for now. The Supreme Court yesterday temporarily halted a lower court order. The lower court order restricted federal agencies from contacting social media firms with requests to remove content. Missouri and Louisiana filed a lawsuit last year against the Biden administration, accusing federal officials of trying to censor people with certain viewpoints. An appeals court recently ruled that federal officials likely violated First Amendment protections by coercing some platforms into deleting certain posts and content. The Biden administration asked the high court to halt the order while it prepares a formal appeal. The Supreme Court's order pauses the lower court's decision until September 22nd. And the Senate has launched a formal inquiry into the Coast Guard's handling of sexual assaults. This comes after a years-long secret investigation of sexual assault and rape reports at the Coast Guard Academy. The reports were allegedly ignored or covered up by high-ranking officers, according to a CNN report. The Coast Guard briefed Congress and confirmed dozens of assaults. It also said some of the accused were promoted to top jobs in different branches of the military. Some lawmakers say they were outraged that the Coast Guard withheld the findings from them for years. Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut called the cover-up, quote, probably the most shameful, disgraceful incident of cover-up of sexual assault that I've ever seen in the United States military. Coast Guard leaders have issued an apology to the assault survivors and Congress. They're reviewing their policies on sexual assault and harassment. And coming up, are open border policies making us vulnerable to terrorists? Top experts say it's a threat to national security. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to meet with President Joe Biden next week. More on what's on the agenda after the break. Welcome back. Now we're going to get some legal analysis of Hunter Biden's indictment on federal gun charges. We're going to look at the possibility of a pardon for the first time a 
sitting president's son, and may have misspoke earlier, has been indicted, recent rulings that might play into this, and what charges are most and least likely to lead to a conviction. Bringing in Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center Live. Thank you so much for your time today, Paul. Thank you for having me. Good morning. After the plea agreement fell through, the White House said that President Biden would not pardon his son. But is there a possibility of that happening? And would that ultimately bring an end to President Biden's reelection campaign if he did? Yeah, there is a possibility he would pardon his son, of course, if his son is convicted. Uh, but uh, I don't think uh, that would happen until uh, the election. Win or lose, uh, Biden would pardon his son. Uh, and, and and I don't think his son, even if he is convicted, uh, would be a, he would be appealing his uh, his judgment and conviction, and so he would be out on bail until after the election anyway. Let's talk about the law here. The Fifth Circuit Court in August ruled that a law that bars individuals with a drug history from possessing a firearm was unconstitutional. So, do you think this will lead to an acquittal on the possession charge? Well, it, it would probably could lead to a d dismissal of the charges. I would expect uh, Hunter Biden's attorneys to file a motion to dismiss the charges uh, on those grounds. Now, the Fifth Circuit is uh, not in the D.C. Circuit, of course, so the D.C. Circuit is not bound by it. Uh, but there is a, a valid argument uh, to be made, and the Supreme Court this fall will be hearing uh, a case as well as whether those who are under a domestic violence protective order, whether they're allowed to possess handguns as well. That's another provision of the law. So we'll see what happens there. But he also lied on the uh, form application. Uh, so it very well may be that he may be acquitted uh, or at least found uh, unconstitutional the provision of possessing uh, the gun while he was uh, on drugs but for filling out the form and lying on the form, that's a separate charge, and that charge may still be able to stick. Right, and that possession yeah, charge would involve that United States versus Patrick Daniels case in which the man was a user of marijuana regularly, but the court noted that right. he wasn't intoxicated at the time of his arrest, and they ruled that law unconstitutional. But what about Correct. the lying charges? Do you think that there's more of a likelihood that he'll be convicted on those? Uh, yeah, like I said, uh, that's a separate provision of the statute. So anytime you lie to the federal government, uh, you're subject to uh, being charged for uh, a felony uh, on those grounds on its own. So I think he has a good chance of being convicted on that. But let's keep in mind that this is only the gun charge. The question is, where's all the uh, tax violation charges? that the uh, special counsel should be bringing here. Uh, he brought those in Delaware uh, and only misdemeanor charges, but now he's able to go into DC and California and bring the tax charges. So those I think are the more serious charges and uh, we should see uh, what happens there. And we know that this plea agreement was scrapped, but Hunter's lawyers argues that he's still protected under an immunity provision as part of that deal. Can you explain this? Well, yeah, uh, the, the deal that was scrapped was uh, uh, not only the plea agreement uh, with respect to the tax charges, but what's called a pretrial diversion agreement with respect to the gun charges. And they claim that they had an agreement with uh, uh, the prosecutor to 
have those charges dropped if he kept himself clean for two years. And uh, 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 the special counsel, David Weiss, says, oh, no, that, that, that's been nullified as well. But uh, uh, they have an argument that, no, you signed this a, a pre-diversion agreement and a deal is a deal. So uh, look for that argument to be made in this case as well. I don't think it will prevail, but at least it's an argument that uh, Hunter Biden's attorneys will be making. Well, we're going to be following this very closely. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Current border policies could be making the U.S. vulnerable to terrorists. Top experts say it's a threat to national security. Entities Jason Perry covered an important hearing on this very issue. The House Judiciary Committee on Thursday took a closer look at how terrorists may be entering the U.S. through the southwest border. Representative Tom McClintock started off by saying illegal immigration has increased significantly since President Biden took office in January 2021. Since that day, more than 5.7 million illegal aliens from over 160 countries have illegally crossed our border. Mr. Biden has released over 2.6 million of them. And he highlighted the lack of a proper vetting process of these individuals. Now, since we have no access to most foreign criminal databases, we know little of the foreign criminal records of these 2.6 million illegal immigrants as they've been released into our communities. And of course, we know nothing of the 1.7 million gotaways. The number of people caught at the border who are on the terrorist watch list has also increased significantly since Biden took office, from just three in fiscal year 2020 to 146 in 2023. A former senior law enforcement officer at DHS added this. With almost 200 migrants on the terror watch list, which have been apprehended while trying to sneak across the border, the natural question is, so how many on that list have made it in? Representative Jerry Nadler gave his take on it. I'm sure that my Republican colleagues will do their best to scare people into believing that the next 9-11 is just around the corner. But the fact remains that there has never been a successful attack planned by someone who illegally crossed our southwest border. This point was echoed by one of the witnesses who Representative Chip Roy questioned. Prior to September 11th, 2001, how many individuals had flown airplanes into the World Trade Center and killed 3,000 people? Uh, zero. The chance of dying from a foreign-born terrorist attack since 1975 I'm is sure one that's, in 4.4 sure million Nerasta, per Mr. year. Nerasta, I'm sure that is great comfort to the families of the people from 9-11, because when you sit here and testify that zero people have committed a terrorist attack from crossing our border, I'm sure that is comfort to the people who had terrorist attacks committed by people who came here and overstayed their visas. Todd Benzman, senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, shared his concerns on the border. The recent development of FARC-related uh, terror watch-listed suspects crossing that border, those are people who have spent years and years involved in murder, kidnapping, drug trafficking, extortion, bombings, they are experts in weaponry lives. So we're going to be hearing a lot about FARC people over the next decade. And here in New York City, illegal immigrants continue to arrive by bus. Not only are they not being vetted properly, but New York City Mayor Eric Adams said the issue could destroy the city. Jason Perry, NTD News.
New York. We're going to the break now. Rescue efforts continue in the wake of catastrophic flooding in Libya. Could the high death toll have been avoided? And a group of senior House Republicans demands full sanctions against Huawei as China sanctions Lockheed Martin over arms sales to Taiwan. We have the details after the break. Good to have you back. Libyan security forces continue to scour the flood-ravaged city of Derna for survivors and casualties. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the disaster, though the death toll has already soared past 11,000. The northern coastal city was devastated after torrents of water washed away whole districts Sunday night. This after two dams collapsed under storm floods. Multi-story buildings with sleeping families inside were ripped from the soil and tossed into the sea. This rescue volunteer says some trapped under the rubble are sending messages pleading for help. But the rubble is a stubborn obstacle, preventing rescue teams from reaching them. The exact number of those who have fallen is still unknown. With such a disaster comes the question, who's to blame? A NATO-backed uprising toppled Muammar Gaddafi in 2011, leaving the so-called failed state of Libya with no strong central government since, drifting in and out of war. World Meteorological Organization leader Pateri Talas says flood warnings would have been a game-changer. Emergency management authorities would have been able to carry out evacuation of the, of the people and we could have lost, uh, avoided most of the human, human casualties. Others mention a hydrologist's paper published last year warning of the city's vulnerability to floods and the urgent need to maintain the dams that protected it. The three-member council that acts as the presidency in Libya's internationally recognized government has called for an investigation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden plans to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky next week. The get-together should follow the Ukrainian president's appearance at the United Nations General Assembly. Zelensky plans to ask for more support for Ukraine as it continues its counteroffensive against Russia. He also plans several meetings with other world leaders in New York. Persuading some nations to condemn Russia more forcefully will be one of his objectives. Zelensky will also visit the U.S. Capitol next Thursday. He's expected to meet individually with lawmakers and, membership of leader, and members of leadership. Congress is now weighing a White House request for additional aid to Ukraine, but a GOP that's fiercely divided on the issue has its passage in doubt. China's smartphone maker Huawei is in the crosshairs of 10 senior House Republicans. They're asking for full sanctions against the company and China's top microchip maker. That's because the Chinese manufacturer was able to domestically produce a new 5G-capable phone despite being under partial U.S. sanctions aimed to restrict its access to 5G technology. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the congressman's demands. The GOP lawmakers say reports of Huawei's new Mate 60 Pro phone suggest a blatant violation of U.S. export controls. They're urging the Commerce Department to step up sanctions against Huawei and China's top semiconductor firm SMIC to fully block them from accessing U.S. suppliers. The group led by Chair of House Foreign Affairs Michael McCall sent a letter to the Bureau of Industry and Security on Thursday 
They wrote, We are extremely troubled and perplexed about the Bureau of Industry and Security's inability to effectively write and enforce export control rules against violators, especially China. The congressmen are calling for a China-focused sanctions authority to be set up under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, they say could impose full blocking sanctions on Huawei and SMIC. They're asking the Department of Commerce to ban U.S. imports of SMIC semiconductors to stop granting licenses to Chinese Communist Party-controlled companies, for both Huawei and SMIC's export licenses to be revoked, for both companies to be put on an entity list with trade restrictions, and to pursue criminal charges against the company's executives. The Commerce Department said last week it was working to get more information on the character and composition of the chip that may violate trade restrictions. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. China said today it will impose sanctions against two major U.S. defense contractors. The sanctions against aerospace and defense firms Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin followed allegations by China the companies were providing weapons to Taiwan. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said the U.S. was urged to cease military cooperation with Taiwan or be subject to what China called a resolute and forceful retaliation. The spokesperson named Lockheed Martin's Missouri branch as a contractor involved in an arms sale to Taiwan last month, adding that Northrop Grumman also repeatedly sold weapons to Taiwan. And now we are heading to Jane Worrell in the U.K. for some short headlines from around the world. Good morning, Evelyn and Kevin. The Dominican Republic has closed all borders with neighboring Haiti. It's over a dispute about a canal on the Haitian side that would use water from a river they both share. President Luis Abinader said the canal would affect Dominican farmers and the environment. He closed air, sea and land borders with Haiti at 6 a.m. local time and says he'll keep them shuttered until necessary. The UK, France and Germany announced they will keep their sanctions on Iran. They said this was a direct response to Iran's consistent and severe non-compliance with a defunct nuclear deal between Tehran and world powers. The measures were set to expire in October. Iran called the decision an illegal, provocative action. Taiwan criticised Elon Musk for his comments suggesting Taiwan is an integral part of China. The island's foreign minister responded, writing on the platform X, Taiwan is not part of the PRC and certainly not for sale. This is not the first time Musk has riled Taiwan. Musk's Tesla has a large factory in Shanghai. The former Spanish soccer chief arrived before a high court judge over a complaint of sexual assault. Luis Rubiales allegedly gave an unsolicited kiss to a female player during Spain's Women's World Cup celebrations. He could face between one and four years imprisonment. Rubiales maintains the kiss was mutual and consensual. Well, that's all from me. Back to you, Evelyn and Kevin. Coming up, a top elections official in Wisconsin says not so fast after GOP senators voted to fire her. And an explosion in a Nebraska rail yard prompts authorities to issue an evacuation order. Hazardous materials escaped into the air following the blast. It's good to have you back with us. Wisconsin Republicans have voted to fire the state's top elections official. That followed a months-long legal battle, a months-long battle with the official over how elections were run under her guidance. Here are the details. 
The Wisconsin Senate voted along party lines on Thursday to fire Megan Wolf, the administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Republican lawmakers have been taking issue with how she managed the 2020 elections. Wisconsin Senate Majority Leader Republican Devin LeMayhew said, The vote today represents a lack of faith the people of Wisconsin have in Megan Wolf to serve as administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. According to a study by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, the Wisconsin Elections Commission under Wolf failed to properly enforce election laws. Practices included accepting ballots that did not meet statutory requirements or statutory intent, allowing voters to vote absentee without photo ID, and failing to maintain accurate voter rolls. Wolf responded to the Senate's vote saying she will stay in her job and that lawmakers don't have the power to fire her. She and Wisconsin's Attorney General, Josh Call, filed a lawsuit against GOP lawmakers, asking the court to let her keep her job. California has had a bunch of controversial cases recently involving parents and teachers. Just yesterday, a federal court ruled that there were two teach that ruled in favor of two teachers. They challenged a school district policy they say compelled them to lie to parents about their children's gender identity. Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with an attorney who explains three bills in the state heading to Governor Newsom's desk. The first is AB 957. Attorney Nicole Pearson says it would force parents to affirm their child's newly chosen gender or else. Pearson says when a judge determines custody, the health, safety, and welfare of a child are the most important criteria considered. Pearson says AB 957 would define health, safety, and welfare as including gender affirmation of a child from as young as two years old. If signed into law, the attorney expects the inclusion of gender affirmation in the penal code as well. If you are endangering the child's health, safety, and welfare, you're guilty of abuse, neglect, endangerment, and so on. So this is a foothold. This one just one factor in this just one family code section is the foothold for affirmation to become law across the board, across all code sections in California. The proposed law doesn't define what gender affirmation is. Is it social affirmation, allowing a hairstyle more common for the other sex, or medical, such as allowing irreversible surgeries? It creates a perverse incentive for parents to be more extreme in their affirmation of their child, even if the child doesn't need it, and certainly even if the child doesn't want it. So it creates, again, this kind of zero sums game of getting to the end, which is exactly the agenda that we're seeing. We are seeing right now, we are seeing these systems and these policies put in place to remove children from their families, to drive a wedge between parents and children, actually pit them against each other in California, Democrats argue that bills like AB 957 help protect the well-being of LGBT children whose parents are going through a divorce. The second bill is AB 665 called state-sanctioned kidnapping by some critics. Currently, children 12 and older can only leave home and check themselves into a residential shelter if there is evidence of abuse, incest, or that the child was a danger to themselves or others. What Senator Scott Weiner again and Wendy Carrillo, neither of whom have children, have done is have removed those requirements that the child must be the victim of abuse, incest, or a danger to themselves or others in order for them to run away from home. What this means for parents in California is that you can have your children removed from your homes and you can lose your custody. 
AB 1078 was sponsored by Assemblymember Corey Jackson, reportedly as a response to local school districts banning certain books, usually sexually explicit ones, from school libraries. What the bill actually does is strip local school districts of their authority to decide what curricula and materials are best suited for their community's needs, and um, basically a silencing of parents and, again, their elected representatives. It's a very, very dangerous bill. We are basically living in um, a, communist, a, a communist state where the state will dictate what materials and information your children read, and Lord knows we already know what their agenda is and what their values and priorities are. Jackson says AB 1078 is a necessary response to protect children's access to diverse perspectives, encourage critical thinking, and promote inclusivity in schools. Pearson is calling on those who want to get involved to go to protectkidsca.com. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD reached out to Senator Scott Weiner and Assembly members Wendy Carrillo and Corey Jackson for comment. We're still here waiting to hear back from them. A rail car started on fire in Nebraska following an explosion inside a container. The explosion happened yesterday at a Union Pacific rail yard in North Platte. Video footage shows smoke billowing after the explosion. The fire is now fully contained. Union Pacific says one of the containers involved held hazardous material and explosives. Emergency management officials issued a precautionary evacuation order, which was later lifted. No injuries were reported. An investigation into what caused the incident is now underway. Quite a bit of smoke. Yeah, they definitely have to look into that, mm. especially with all these other train crashes that we've seen and derailments. Yeah, exactly. Still to come, the IRS puts an immediate halt on a popular tax credit program over possible widespread fraud. And oil and gas prices continue to rise as several countries extend supply cuts this year. We speak to Entity Business host Don Ma about the issue. Good to have you back. The IRS is freezing a pandemic-era employer tax benefit. The move reflects IRS concerns over fraudulent claims. The halt is in place at least through the end of the year. IRS agents have reported widespread problems with the Employee Retention Credit Program. No new claims will be processed and roughly 600,000 claims will be investigated. The worry is that businesses are being pressured into making ERC claims by promoters. The IRS says it's protecting business owners from getting scammed into filing improper claims. Currently, the IRS is investigating almost $3 billion worth of fraudulent claims related to the program. A surge in U.S. oil prices soaring past the $90 a barrel mark for the first time this year, something that potentially doesn't bode well for inflation. And here to discuss this is Entity Business host Don Ma. Good morning, Don. It's great to have you. Yeah, good morning, Kevin. How are you doing? Doing good. I hope you are, too. So what's behind the rise in oil prices? Yeah, so this uh, recent increase in oil prices, uh, it's been driven by concerns about supply. Um, and what's fueling those concerns is actually uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia last week deciding to extend their supply cuts uh, through the end of the year. Uh, which, of course, was a surprise to markets. And more than anything else, Kevin, uh, uh, markets don't like surprises. Uh, so U.S. crude oil prices are above $90 a barrel this morning. I just checked earlier. Um, and like you mentioned, uh, 
Some investors are actually predicting uh, prices could go as high as $100 per barrel later this year. It's, it's, it's going pretty high right now. Well, one has to wonder how much domestic U.S. oil production would alleviate that problem. So what should we be worried about in this? And is it going to make inflation worse? Yeah, Kevin, unfortunately, it's definitely going to have an impact uh, in on inflation because we already saw this right uh, in the inflation report that came out on Wednesday. Uh, headline inflation increased at the fastest speed this year, and, and it was exactly because of higher gas prices. Um, the national average for regular gasoline rose to $3.86 this morning, according to AAA. That's six cents higher than last week and 16 uh, cents higher than the same day last year. So there, there are a dozen states uh, in the U.S. now averaging uh, $4 a gallon or higher for regular gasoline. And here's the thing, Kevin, there's, there's nothing really the Fed can do about this. Uh, I mean, when Saudi Arabia or Russia decides to produce less oil, I mean, no, no amount of Fed tightening can change that. And that's why the Federal Reserve looks more closely at inflation, excluding food and energy. But, you know, it does have an impact on inflation and gas prices. Right. And so that's definitely something that Americans are very concerned about. Obviously, everyone's got to get around. Now, California's attorney general, that's that's something else I want to talk to you about. Can you explain what's happening there? Yeah. Um, so California's attorney general says Google has settled a case involving data tracking without consent. Uh, the settlement will cost uh, Google $93 billion. The California DOJ says Google collected, stored, and used consumer location data for advertising purposes without consent. So Google is facing an uh, anti-landmark, uh, sorry, a uh, landmark antitrust lawsuit as well alongside that. But other than this, uh, last week the 30-year fixed uh, mortgage rate crept up slightly, staying above 7%. Uh, so according to Freddie Mac, um, the national average rose par partially due to inflation and other factors as well. Investors are waiting until next week to see if the Federal Reserve will uh, implement another rate hike. Um, but those are just uh, two updates from me this morning, Kevin. Well, yeah, it's making it, you know, we, we have to figure out something. People need to buy homes. But Don, before you go, this auto strike, what economic impact are we expecting from it? Yeah, there's definitely going to be an impact uh, on the economy. The, the auto industry accounts for somewhere around 3% of the U.S. GDP. Uh, the, there are a lot of estimates going around on what the impact will be. One estimate says that uh, this strike, if it lasts for around 10 days, it could cost the U.S. economy $5 billion. Uh, but the good news is here, Kevin, is that uh, it probably won't tip the U.S. economy into recession. Um, if the strike lasts for about a month, it could affect the U.S. GDP by 0.2%, and that won't be enough to push the U.S. economy into a severe downturn or anything like that. But we have to watch out for uh, some vehicle prices because those could potentially go up. Yeah, it's so important to have those labor relations smoothed out there. Don, host of NTD Business, thank you. Thank you. You, yeah, you can just see exactly how important it is when you have a dispute in the labor market because that's going to impact the entire nation, the GDP. That's right. Um, although I think some were saying that 0.2% is not that significant, but still, it's an impact, that's for sure. And consumers that are looking to buy a car, they will be hit, right? Right. Well, also, what's the difference between motivating and inspiring someone? I spoke to a CEO who says he thinks leadership is broken. Take a look. 
Joining me now is Lance Secretan. He is the founder and CEO of the Secretan Center. It's good to have you, Lance. Now let's talk about higher ground leadership. First, I want to know what exactly does this mean? Well, high ground leadership is an entirely new way to think about leadership. So for me, leadership is broken. We spend $170 billion a year on leadership development. We have every guru, consultant, and consulting company and written books about leadership. And it doesn't work anywhere. It doesn't work in Ottawa, it doesn't work in Washington, it doesn't work in politics, healthcare, police, academia, and or even corporate America. So look around, you'll see how broken leadership is. So the, the answer is we've been funneling motivation, which is a fear-based system, into our theories on leadership. But the reality is we don't need leading. What we need is inspiring. Mm. Now, can you go into a bit more detail on what is novel about higher ground leadership? Well, inspiration, which is quite different from motivation. Motivation is something we do to people. And it really involves a bribe or reward, to put it nicely, or punishment. And that's the fundamental rule of motivation, which is what leadership theory is built on. So leadership theory is about we want people to do things, so we're going to bribe them to do it, or we're going to uh, reward them to do it. But that's not that's okay for the short term. It doesn't work in the long term. So love-based connections with people is what leads to inspiration. We do everything in life because we're inspired. I smell a rose because it inspires me. I fall in love and it inspires me. I join companies that inspire me. So inspiration is what we're looking for. What leaders do not understand is that their job is to inspire other people, not motivate them, not lead them, but inspire them. Well, everybody can be a leader or is a leader. Now, can you explain that in further detail, what you mean by that and what makes everybody a leader? Well, first of all, I think we've misunderstood what leadership means, as I've explained, but there's another reason we've misunderstood. We think it's only for the C-suite and for leaders of large corporations and so on. But everybody's a leader. There's no exceptions. Everybody's a leader. You're a six-year-old kid in the schoolyard, you're a leader. We're a leader in our relationship with our spouses and partners. You're a parent, you're a leader, you're leading your children. When you go to the supermarket and ask for something, somebody is leading you and helping you find things. So we're in leadership roles all the time. We need to understand that we need to replace that term with inspiration and then live it. So have you noticed that? I mean, you go to a restaurant, why do you love that restaurant? Because it inspires you. It doesn't motivate you, and there's no leadership. It's inspiring you. That's why you go back. That's why we do everything that lifts us up. That's very interesting, and I appreciate you sharing this with us today. Thank you, Len Secretan. That was an insightful interview. Thank you for having me. And he also said that it's a matter of cherishing people and lifting them up. Oh, yeah, that's really good values there. And I really like how he was saying that this paradigm of, you know, always being in that leadership mentality, I think that's really great. Mm. So we're going to go to the break here. Inner strength, compassion, and true authenticity. A pediatric nurse says she found these and more while preparing for the NTD Chinese beauty pageant. Find out what inspires her after the break.
welcome back. It takes courage to stand on a pageant stage, but for most candidates in the NTD Global Chinese Beauty Pageant, it's been a rewarding journey. Annie Chen, a pediatric nurse from Boston, says she discovered inner strength and what traditional values mean to modern women. Let's hear her story. So I decided to participate in Miss NTD because I wanted to strengthen my character and also learn more about what it means to be a traditional Chinese woman. I read stories about Wang Baochuan and Wang Daojing and other traditional Chinese women who were not just beautiful, but also virtuous, selfless, and compassionate. I was really inspired by them. This is a Chinese phrase that I've always grown up hearing. And it is also the tagline of Miss NTD, which is true authenticity, true compassion, and true beauty. In Chinese culture, it's believed that mind, body, and spirits are all interconnected. So if you have a mindset of honesty and compassion, then your body and spirit will naturally have an aura of goodness and beauty to it. In 2015, when I was a freshman in college, I helped organize and lead a bicycling initiative to raise awareness about um, the persecution of Falun Gong in China. This was a journey of over 3,000 miles, over 40 days, and it taught me leadership and how to get up after I've fallen and the importance of doing something bigger than myself and something more important than myself and serving others. I think the most impressive moment in the journey was really just meeting these um, bystanders who were kind strangers who expressed their support uh, for us. We didn't know each other, but they knew that this was something important, that they needed to support religious freedom. I was born in the Midwest, and I'm currently in Boston. And even though I was born in America, at a young age, I knew that Chinese culture was more than just its delicious food. It's a culture rich 5,000 years in history, divinity, morality. My parents taught me the principles of filial piety, respect, courtesy, and harmony, while my spiritual practice, Falun Gong, taught me honesty, compassion, perseverance, and endurance. Um, so Chinese culture has impacted me, has shaped me to be who I am today, and has uh, impacted my viewpoint on life, my personality, my temperament, and I'm very blessed and honored to be Chinese and Taiwanese-American. Well, she was really using her leadership skills to stand up for what she believes in. I was going to say, say the same thing. It kind of ties in, right? Organizing that and with ambitions bigger than herself. Yes. That's awesome. All right, that's it for today. Uh, we'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Write us an email if you'd like with some feedback. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.